We've been talking about God images for the last, well, I started last week, we're doing it for three weeks. And with the idea of this, that, that we subconsciously or consciously think in images today. Um, there was a day and age where much of what we did was oral tradition, and then Gutenberg invented the printing press, and he, he printed Bibles, which was a mistake, because he went to debtor's prison for, no one wants to read the Bible, but... Anyway, this started this whole print mentality, but we're way beyond the print mentality and we're very image-driven now. For instance, if you go to a car lot, say I'm interested in like a new car, whatever kind of car it would be, they don't hand you like a booklet with no pictures and just a bunch of words. Here's a hundred pages that describes the car, the way the cylinders work. and You, you know, they, that would be stupid. You would never want that. You want a picture, an image. So advertisers know this. They drive this home to you all the time. We also do it in our spirituality where we, we have kind of an art gallery in our soul that you can walk through and you can see the God images up on the walls. And those God images fuel the type of experience you're having with God. And so many of them are skewed and they're twisted and they're tweaked, sometimes through weird experiences we've had, bad theology we've believed, a mishmash kind of hodgepodge spirituality that we've thrown together from pop culture. And so you could walk down this hallway in your soul and you could look up on the wall and you may see a God that's super distant. He just doesn't want anything to do with you. A God that's ready to reject you or abandon you. A God who's back to you and He doesn't really care. A God who's looking down at you and He's just taking the checklist off and seeing all your behaviors. And, and sometimes those get empowered from different experiences and all kinds of things in our lives. And so we come to the Scripture... But what we often do with the Scripture is rather than dismantling a false image of God, we leave it there. And it just fuels your faith unconsciously. It's just empowering it. And so you have this picture of God that's accuser, right? If that's the bad image. And He's always taking lists at you. And you, and you take Bible verses and you write them over the front of the image. No, God is love. I'm forgiven. Jesus paid the price for all my sins. But it doesn't matter because this image is so daunting that it permeates all the little Scripture verses that you memorize. And it's really not until you say, we're going to dismantle these false images that we're going to let the true image of God come to bear in my experience. That's what's going to hang in the gallery of my heart. And this is a place where you have to partner with God on this. There is no apathetic spiritual formation that ever takes place. It's not simply God-word or you-word. It's, it's a collaboration of relationship. And so you have to go, man, i got to pay attention. What are those false images that stem from my life? And what I want to talk today is about God as lover versus God as accuser. And I think we have a lot of experiences that we've grown up with, and sometimes the church has taught things uh, that really fuel this idea that Jesus is just there to kind of check off my list and accuse me. And I, I, was, stud I was going through these archives in a, a theological library that I'm doing my doctorate at, and I found some old video footage that I think has, has really birthed this understanding, uh, this false understanding of Christ as sort of the one who accuses you for all the things you do wrong. So, Joe, are we ready on that? Okay, I want you to watch this.
tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because Do you think he can fly? Here he comes. Well, alright. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I am Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you... I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Stella, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. All right, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. All right, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people or diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. Are you supposed to clap for that? Just a sick, sick thing, isn't it? Our friends from Philadelphia put that together. That's how they're reaching Philadelphia for Christ right there. It's incredible. It's hilarious to think about, you know, because you're just like, this is ridiculous. And yet, there's a reality that that's how a lot of us live our spiritual lives that we're, we're, we're not close or intimate with Jesus because we know, we know what we've done wrong and He's sort of up there just checking the list and He's bummed and He's, he's accusing us, essentially. So as soon as He walked in, they're all just sitting there, oh my gosh, you lied, you stuck up your middle finger when they cut you off on a camel. and you know, all, Whatever it is, it could be the most minute thing. But what you have in that is sort of this image of God that is looking down and He's accusing you. And a lot of you have that image of God. Whether we, whether we got it from church or whatever, it doesn't even matter where it came from. The reality is it empowers a spirituality that essentially just keeps you in a spiritual distance and makes you want to jump the fence. 
Like if I'm, I'm just getting busted every time I break the rules, so how close can I get to breaking all the rules before I get popped? The, the, the problem with the gallery that, of your soul that you walk down is you have these images of God that are false, but how many of you have a, a picture of your enemy on the wall of the gallery of your soul? Most of us really look at, at Satan, the Satan that we read about in Scripture, this true spiritual enemy that would like to paralyze our faith and accuse us and accuse God. We sort of diminish him. And so you might have this gallery full of all these tweaked images of God and you have this maybe a little tiny picture of Satan in the corner and he's just like got his horns on and looks a little cute and stupid and we don't give him any, we don't pay any attention to him. When the reality is, Scripture says that God is not the accuser of His children. Satan is. So if you turn to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. This is the image, this is the picture that they paint of Christ, uh, of Satan at the end of it all. It says, For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And it's talking about his destruction and the coming of the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ. But the picture is that you have an, a true enemy. In fact, Peter would paint the picture of your enemy as a roaring lion that's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And who is more capable of being devoured than the person who's not paying attention that he even has an enemy? It's like he's just whatever. So, what you have here is, which is, this is where things get really twisted for us. We have an image of God that's accusing us of our sins and condemning us. And then we have no image of our enemy who all the while stands behind us with a knife out, stabbing us in the back, destroying our faith. You need to have an accurate picture of your enemy that is accusing you before God day and night. And if you believe those lies, if you believe those accusations, and you attribute them to God, then He wins every time. And do not partner with your enemy in painting these false images of God. Because that's what He wants you to do. He wants you to have a false faith. The, the image that we want to look at today is this image of God as our lover, which is a kind of an awkward image for us. There's two, there's two positions that we normally take. One is a contractual relationship with God. That God saved you and some of you have come to faith and therefore you need to behave a certain way and God and you can have a relationship. If you don't behave that way, he sort of gets bummed at you and he's accusing you all the time. The imagery of Scripture paints God all the time, always as a lover. A God who is coming after his people, choosing them for himself. And so, the picture that you get is him calling Abraham and from Abraham bringing forth this nation. And the whole time he's saying, you are my people, I've begotten you, I've betrothed you. And so when his people reject it, and even when they come down to the Ten Commandments, he calls it a covenant. He's not saying, here's a list of do's and don'ts, and if you want to keep me happy, you want to do this. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with me, in covenant with me. It's a marriage contract. When you come to the prophets, those crazy dudes that run around all the time and scream at people, they're enforcing the covenant. And the metaphors and the pictures that you always get is that Israel has committed adultery. 
It is a relational covenant where God says it is not an issue of you breaking behaviors and me being upset about it. It's that you have broken a covenant. You've broken a love relationship. And I've loved you and I still come after you, but you don't want anything to do with me and you go after other people all the time. And so this picture of God as lover is one of intimacy. He keeps coming after us even when we've played the whore and when we've committed adultery against Him. And so what you start thinking about is going, how wrong is it then when God says, this is the image of me, I'm a lover, I'm coming after you, to think of Him purely as contractual. And what I mean by that is picture two people standing up here getting married. And they write their own vows. And their vows are, Dear Linda, I'm going to take out the trash every night. And then I'm going to mow the lawn for you. I'm going to try to keep your car really clean. I won't drink too much. Uh, you know, and, and just this list of behaviors. And you think Linda just crying, oh my gosh, that is beautiful. You know, she, she'd be like, what? Who cares? We're like, that's not what I want. What does she want? I want your heart. I want your faithfulness. I want your eyes to only look upon me. I want your imagination to not go to anybody else. I want your love to be, have fidelity to me. That's what I want. And nobody would get excited about going, yeah, we're gonna, I hooked up with a girl and we're going to write a contract to each other of all the behaviors we'd like each other to do and then we're going to get married. It's going to be cool. Nobody gets pumped about that. And so when, when God comes in the scene, He's saying, look, this is what I want from you. I want this relationship. I, I am your lover. I am the one who has come after you and you keep running away from me. That is the picture and he gets jealous at times. But at the end of the day, he's saying, I'm not looking for people to live a contract. I'm looking for people that say, Have, is my love good enough for you? Is my love good enough for you? Or are there other things that you love that you think are better than me? Better to me? I want us to look at sort of a description of this image from First John these images of God as lover from 1 John. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. He says this, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. One of the, the images of God as lover is multifaceted. So, the Old Testament picture is that marriage is probably the closest thing that I can come uh, to really giving you the full picture of intimacy. But I also want to have you have other pictures because my love is textured. It's, it's got a fabric to it. And so he paints this picture in First John and says, How great is this love that the Father has lavished on us. And this love is transformative in its nature so that we become children of God. It renames us at the core of our being. Where God is no longer standing as accuser. He's not our accuser. He's our Father. And He says that my love isn't just sprinkled out on a few people. A little touch here and 
I can't remember your name. And a little bit over here. Like, it's not that kind of love. He's saying, I'm lavishing it. I'm throwing it all over you. And it's so powerful that it's going to move you from death to life. It's going to take you from a child who doesn't care about his dad, who's off in a far country, to make you a child of God. It's a redemptive, transforming love. And so one of the images that you need in this gallery is, is this God as a lover who comes after you as His bride and God as a Father who wraps His arms around you like a child and continues to love you and lavish you with His love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, he paints another picture and he says, this is how God showed His love among us He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. So here's the definition. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you come to communion today, God says, this is love. This is a demonstration of My love for you. The cross is not just some cool religious iconography that you can wear around your neck. It's not just the... When I live a contractual relationship, this is where I come to get out of jail. It's kind of my get out of jail free card. I got, I broke the contract, but now I'm forgiven. Thanks for putting that clause into it. You come here to recognize that the great lover who has pursued us even in our adultery demonstrates His love in such a way that it's mutual in the Godhead to say the Son will be sacrificed for all. When you come here this morning, it's a demonstration of the love that He has for you. Not that you've earned it or even reciprocated it. Because it's not that you loved Him, it's that He loved you. And the demonstration of that is a blood-stained cross. It is intensely powerful love. It's life-sacrificing to get your attention, to draw you to Him, to say, will you be captivated by this love? Or will you continue to give yourself to lesser loves? A little pornography here. A little premarital sex here. A little getting hammered over here. Whatever it is. Are those loves actually more captivating than the God of the universe who says, I will demonstrate my love for you in sending my Son. What is your heart captivated by? The next image is in verse 18 of chapter 4. And he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. What John is pulling for here is again, when we really get our hearts around this this perfect love that God has, this unconditional agape is what the Greek is, which is just this unconditional love. So when you get your hearts around that, fear dissipates. The language that he uses is it drives out fear like a tsunami that comes and just washes it away. You should have a picture of God that's reaching out to you and it's so full of light and love that the darkness is miles behind Him. The things that you fear the most are miles behind Him. And He says, this is safe. This is secure. 
that if you really get this, if you're captivated by this love, it's going to, it's going to create a place of, of safety and security. It will drive your fear away. And how many of us live anxious lives captivated by fear? And we have an image of God that says, you know what, you should be afraid. Because I'm coming with my whoop-up stick and i got a list of things that you've done wrong and you should be afraid. And John taps into that and says, fear comes from the understanding of punishment. And he just got done telling us what? That he punished who? His son. He demonstrated his love. Sin can be forgiven now. Now you can be loved. Are you captivated with that scenario of love? He says, quit being afraid of me. My love is dangerous and it's scary. It's untamed. It's not packaged and put in a bottle. But it's, it's real. It's the greatest love you can have. And I demonstrated it for you when I took your sin away. Don't fear me. So you have these pictures of God as lover, as, as the one who marries His people and wants to live a fidelity with them, a faithful life with them, as a father who grabs his kids and says, I'm just going to pour love out on you. As a demonstration, this picture of the cross that isn't just to cover sin, but it's to say, this is the fullness of my love. And as a tsunami that just takes away all that fear because your punishment has been paid for. What, what do we do with those images? How do, we, how do we actually live in such a way that those empower how I relate to Jesus? Well, like we said, we have to have an accurate picture of our accuser, of our enemy. Make sure that's hanging somewhere in your gallery so that when these real images of God get contradicted, you know where that's coming from. That you're not just saying, well, yeah, maybe God doesn't like me today because my car broke down. You know, maybe He's like, ah, I'm sending an angel down to break your car because you made me angry. You drank too much wine. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. And so here's, you know, and you start having these weird thoughts and ideas about God. Know where that's coming from. It's coming from your accuser. The next thing is making sure that you're dismantling false images of God. You can't just put these pictures over the old pictures. You have to say, God, I've thought of you as my accuser. I'm taking that down today. I'm laying that at your cross. I'm repenting. As that, that's false belief. You're not an accuser. You're my lover. I'm going to hang these images up of you as father, as you have, as husband, wife, as spouse, as the one who casts out all fear. I'm going to have these accurate pictures of you. And then we have to do something with our sin. Right? We, we have to go out and live this thing. My friend Ron uses language that I think is really powerful. He says, the problem when we think of contractual relationships with God is that then we think, well, then God wants me to behave right, so I have to activate my will and I have to try harder. But my will's screwed up, so I hope He gives me grace so I can fix my will. And then I can please Him. And God's just kind of like, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. You know? And you're just kind of stuck. And he says the issue is not disability, but when you read through the Bible as a whole, what you see is the issue is always disaffection. It's not that my will's disabled, it's that my heart is loving other things. My heart is not captivated by this picture of Jesus. 
My heart is not captivated by the love of God. So I'm going to go and I'm going to whore it out to other things. That's what I'm going to be captivated by. I'm going to be captivated by this person or this job or this amount of money. It can be very minuscule and it can betray everybody because they might not see it. But God says, I want all of you. How happy would you be with a husband and wife that loved you 70% of the time? They were faithful 70% of the time. That's a pretty good percentage. 70. It's up there. You know? And you're like, no, I don't think I'd be good with that. And yet we want God to be stoked on 70, 60, maybe 40 some days and have Him just go, yeah, that's cool. Grace, man. It's all about grace. He's, that's not cool with God. He's going, I want all of you, and between now and the time I take you to be with me physically, uh, you're going, I want your heart to grow more and more and more in affection for me and, and not putting your affection elsewhere. So if you're living a life where you're struggling with certain sins and your idea is that you're going to build fences around yourself so you don't climb over them to get to that sin, trust me, it'll never work. You're going to have to build a bigger fence and a bigger fence and a bigger fence. Why? Because your will's broken? No, because your heart wants that sin on the other side of the fence. And you'll do anything to go get it. What if that heart started going, no, what I really want is the God who gives me life. What I really want is this offer, this invitation, this crazy God that's been pursuing me since the beginning of time, that's like dying for me. Maybe I'm going to take Him up on that love, being the greatest love. And so as you sit there this morning, there's so many ramifications that God may be doing in our hearts. Maybe there's images of God that we have to correct. Maybe we've ignored the fact that we have an enemy. But I know for all of us, there's somewhere where you can look in your life and go, this sin that I've looked at and been ashamed of is, is, is not something that God's accusing me of. It just brings to the surface the fact that in this area, I don't really love God. I'm not really faithful to God here. And God, God likes an honest conversation. So in our time of worship today, let's, let's do business with God on this. Let's have faith that is empowered by real pictures of Jesus. Some of you have to say, God, change my heart here. I haven't loved you. Some of you have to say, God, this is the image of you that's false. I'm laying it down. Some of you have to say to Satan to shut up. You don't get to whisper in my ear anymore these false pictures of Jesus. I don't know what it is. I just know that the, the beauty of God as lover is that He invites you to life as freedom. And, and, and if we're going to taste that, we're going to change the world. Let's pray. God, we look out here today and we know that You see us right here, right now, as we are. You know where our struggles are. You know where the images are flawed and broken. You know where our hearts are disaffected towards You. And so God, there's nothing to pray other than would You come and do what You want to do. Would You give us such courage that we would yield our hearts to You and confess the places where we have loved others.
where we would dismantle images of you that are false. Where we would rebuke our enemy because we have authority in Christ over him because we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. God, would you come and instruct us in your compassion and your patience. Even now as I speak, I know people are are afraid to respond to you. And I just want to lift up that picture of you in, in verse 18 of 1 John, that perfect love casts out fear. So Holy Spirit, create safety this morning and security so people can respond. Push back the enemy that, that would come and try to distort what you want to do here. And just let this table be that demonstration of your love and the receiving uh, as, as a young man or a young woman is receiving his spouse. God, we receive you this morning as our lover. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.